Would you uh, please open your Bible with me to Ephesians chapter 3? So we carry on this morning in our series, Ephesians chapter 3, and uh, the title of today's message is uh, Mission Possible. One of my uh, favorite movie series of all time, um, as you might be able to guess from the title of today's message, uh, is Mission Impossible, one of my favorite series of all time. And part of the mystery um, that, of, of what keeps me coming back uh, to this series over and over again is not so much that Tom Cruise is going to save the world again. Uh, that's not really what keeps me coming back. The, the mystery for me is how he's going to save the world again. Like, really, how many more times is Tom Cruise going to jump out of a helicopter or or scale up the side of a skyscraper building, or how many more times is he going to come down on one of those razor-thin wires and hang inches from the floor, body fully spread out so he doesn't set off the motion detectors or security sensors? Like, how many more times before retirement can Tom Cruise do that? And, and so the mystery is not that he's going to save the world. The mystery is how is he going to do it this time? As we open our Bibles to Ephesians chapter 3, uh, Paul tells us that God is revealing a mystery. And the mystery is not so much that God is restoring humanity to our unity that existed prior to sin entering the world. That's not the mystery. We know that God is doing that. The mystery is, how is God doing that? How is God bringing all of this together? And that's the focus of our passage this morning. So let's have our Bibles open to Ephesians chapter 3 and follow along with me in your copy of God's Word as I begin reading in verse 1 and down through to verse 13. Ephesians 3, verse 1, Paul writes, For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation as I have written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints... This grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. This is a pretty amazing passage, uh, in part because Paul tells us that he has an extraordinarily clear sense of purpose within his life. He knows what his mission in life is. Look again at verse 6. The mystery, he says, is that the Gentiles are part of the family of God through Christ, and then verse 7, he says, I was made a minister of this gospel. And then verses 8 and 9, he says, my mission now is to tell everyone, especially you Gentiles, about Jesus. 
Like This is his mission in his life, to take this mystery, which, by the way, you may have noticed as we read through this passage, that's a word that appears four times in these 13 verses that we just looked at. And, and one of the principal rules of Bible study, loved ones, is that when you see a word that is repeated in the passage, it's a pretty good sign that that word is important. So this word mystery here is, understand that it's not a mystery in the sense of something that needs to be solved. Okay, so when, when you read mystery in this passage here, don't think CSI. Okay, don't think Scooby-Doo. Okay, because I know that's what a lot of you are thinking right now. Okay, don't think that. It's not that kind of mystery. It's not a mystery in the sense of something that needs to be solved because God has already solved the problem, right? Like, he's already provided a solution. There's, there's already a solution to this mystery. Instead, this is a mystery in the sense of something to be revealed, Something to be unveiled, something to be uncovered by God. And so the mystery is not if God will restore all things to their original unity like they were before sin entered the world. God is doing that. We know that he is doing that. The mystery here is that God is doing that by abolishing all of the racial and social and spiritual barriers that once divided, and he's bringing all of these people into this united family called the church through faith in Jesus Christ. That is amazing. And that's a mystery worth paying attention to. And Paul says here in this passage that, that the mission of his life is simply this. God has saved me so that I can tell everyone about the unveiling of this amazing mystery. To be more specific, he's saying, God has saved me so that I can tell everyone, Gentiles especially, about Jesus and God's great plan to bring Jews and Gentiles alike into this one family called the church. And we got to see as we make our way through this passage that what was true for Paul at that time in some sense is also true for us. It's true for us as believers in Jesus Christ. Now, to be clear, Paul's situation was unique. Um, you might remember Paul was saved and then he was instantly told by the Lord that he would be the one that God would use to tell all of the people who were not Jewish that they could be made right with God without having to become Jewish. That was revolutionary at that time, and, and that if they would believe in this Jesus who died and rose again to save them from their sins, that they would be saved. And so Paul's now explaining in chapter 3 that he is giving his life for this mission, for the revealing of this mystery, to tell everyone that he possibly can about this Jesus. And that, my friends, is the mission of every Christian. And so here's the big idea that we're going after today, right here. We have been sent by Jesus to tell everyone that we can about Jesus. Okay, We have been sent by Jesus to tell everyone that we can about Jesus. In fact, that's what Jesus himself told us. For example, John 20, verse 21, Jesus said to his disciples, and by extension he says also to us, as the Father has sent me, I am sending you. Acts 1, verse 8, just before Jesus ascends into heaven, he says, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Not to mention what he says in Matthew 28, Jesus says, Go, therefore. Go, therefore. I mean, this is one of the passages that the church is built on and that this specific church right here, our church, stands on. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. And all of that 
is predicated on the reality that Jesus himself was sent by the Father to save us from our sins. So simply put, the command for us is to go. And that's the command of every follower of Jesus Christ. As one author puts it, we may not all go overseas, but we are all to be going. We're all to be going. And listen, loved ones, we are all going somewhere, right? When we're done here, you're going to go somewhere else. And then you're going to go somewhere else tomorrow, and you're going to go somewhere else the day after that, and you're going to go somewhere else all through this week. Some will go into classrooms as teachers and students. Some will go into workplaces as the only follower of Christ in your job. Some will go back into marriages with a spouse who doesn't believe. Some will go into friendships with people that you care deeply about who care nothing about Jesus. I mean, we're all going somewhere, and the question for us today is simply this. Are we going to those places with the mission that God has given us? Are you going into those places with the mission that God has given us? And so, I just want to walk us through this passage this morning in Ephesians chapter 3, verse by verse, and help us see what it will take for us to endure in our God-given mission. So since our mission is to tell everyone about Jesus, then, then we need to realize these six certainties that come out of this passage here this morning. Here's the first. You can jot this down. If we are going to endure in our God-given mission, then we need to realize that it will not always be easy. It won't always be easy. You may have noticed this already, but uh, telling other people about Jesus is not always easy. Anybody can testify to that, right? It's not always easy. And sometimes it leads to some really uncomfortable consequences. Notice again in verse 1 that Paul says that he's a prisoner for Christ Jesus on behalf of the Gentiles. So his passion for Jesus and his passion for telling other people about Jesus has landed him in jail. In fact, even before that, he starts verse 1 by saying, for this reason. So he's reminding us about what he has just told us. He's reminding us that there was a time in our life, as he says back in chapter 2, where we were dead in our sins. Like no life, not even looking for God, but then by the grace and the love and the mercy of God, he has made us alive together with Jesus Christ by faith. By grace, you have been saved through faith. He's telling us you were once far away from God, but now in Christ, you have been brought near to God. So our identity, who we are, has changed for us in Christ. And part of what he's saying here in verse one is that we engage now in this mission because of who we now are. And we engage in this mission at any cost. Now, I get it, because that's a lot easier said than done, right? To engage in the mission at any cost. It's a lot easier said than done. I mean, how many of us can testify to times in our life where it appeared as though the door was swinging wide open for us to talk to somebody else about Jesus, and then we just kind of shrink back in fear? Anybody else ever been through that, right? And, and we just kind of shrink back a little bit. And it can be fear of any number of different things. And, and I want to suggest to you that one of the reasons that we shrink back is because that fear pricks us at the point of some of the greatest idols of our hearts. Our comfort, our security, our safety, our fear of man, our need for approval from other people. Like, how am I going to be ridiculed if I say something right now? How are other people going to look at me differently if I take a stand for this right now? And part of his point here is to say that our perspective changes for us when we understand who we are. When we understand what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. Notice again, verse 1. 
See, in Paul's mind, he's not a prisoner of the Jews who arrested him, nor is he a prisoner of the Romans who incarcerated him. He is a prisoner of Christ Jesus who has captured him. He knows the reason that he's suffering right now is not because he's done something wrong. It's actually because he has done something right. And when we put ourselves in those places of sharing the gospel with other people, giving ourselves up to tell other people about Jesus Christ and the difference that he's made for us, the difference that he can make for them, it's going to put us in some uncomfortable situations. We have to understand that, that that's part of the territory. If you're committed to living for Jesus in your workplace and you're the only one there, it's going to make things harder. If you're committed to living for Jesus in your classroom and with your friends, it's going to make things harder. Like if, if you're committed to living for Jesus within your extended family, and maybe you're the only ones in your extended family who know and love Jesus Christ and you're following after him with everything that you have, and, and you're committed to that, and, and when you do that, it means that you don't do some of the things that the extended family does because of your commitment to Christ, and it makes you stick out like a sore thumb. It's going to make things harder, right? Remember Jesus in Mark chapter 3? just started his ministry. He's just started preaching the gospel and he's calling people to repentance and faith. He's calling people to follow after him. His family is standing there. They're watching all of this unfold and his very own family thinks that he is nuts. And if it was like that for Jesus, shouldn't we at least expect a little bit something like that for us? See, the difference is that the encouragement that Jesus gives to those who will be prisoners for him is that even when it gets hard, even when the persecution comes, even when the tribulation comes, Jesus says that we can have peace in our hearts. And why can we have peace in our hearts? Because Jesus has overcome the world. He says, in this world you will have tribulation, but take heart because I have overcome the world. So when we put ourselves out there to be a prisoner for Christ, we can still have peace within our hearts because we belong to the one who has overcome everything. See, we need to realize that, first of all, that it will not always be easy. But then we also need to see this, number two. We need to realize that we have a gift to be shared. If we're going to endure, we need to realize that we have a gift to be shared. Notice what Paul says next in verses 2 and 3. He says, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace. So, He's, he's pausing here right in the middle. He's not even in the middle of his thought yet. He's right at the beginning and, and he just kind of stops. He goes off of that train of thought onto a totally new train of thought. He's going to pick up that train of thought again later in verse 14. But he says here in verse 2, assuming that you've heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, verse 3, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation as I have written briefly. Notice it's a gift that we have been given. It's been given to Paul, he says in verse 2. The mystery was made known to me by revelation in verse 3. See this here. Grace was not something that he could manufacture. And grace is not something we can manufacture in our lives either. It's not like Paul was taking a bunch of things within his life, a bunch of good works, a bunch of accomplishments, a bunch of this, a bunch of that, putting it all together, sticking it on this assembly line, and then out at the other end spits a whole bunch of grace. Like that's not the way that it works. Instead, grace was given to him. Grace was made known to him, he says, verse 3, by revelation. Paul didn't work for the grace, and we don't work for the grace. We receive this grace from God. Paul received this grace from God, and the reason that he received it was to tell the Gentiles about it. That word stewardship, that's what that means. 
That word stewardship carries the idea of management. It's a little bit like uh, taking care of a friend's house while they're away. That's actually where that original word comes from. You, you steward it. You, you don't own the house. You're just taking care of it. And, and we realize, right, that everything that we have in this life, we steward because we've been given it from God. You realize that your, your possessions, your house, your money, even your family, it's all a gift from God. We don't own any of it. We just take care of it. We, we manage it for a time. When I was in a seminary, the pastor of the church that we attended asked if I would uh, take care of his house for a few weeks while he was on vacation one summer. And, and I said, yeah, of course, I'd be happy to do that. And, and so I would go out to their house. They lived out in the country. And I'd go every two or three days and, and just check and make sure that the house was okay. And it seems that just after I left checking the house one day, it seems that the power went out in their house. And so I didn't make it back for another couple of days after that. And, and so I got back uh, to their house a few days later, and I'm walking up to the house, and, and I can smell something outside. And, like, it is not good. And, but I have no idea what it is. And so I'm like, okay, I'm going to go inside, make sure everything's okay on the inside, then I'll come back out and see if I can find whatever it is that smells so bad out here. So I walk up to the front door, walk into the house in the front door, and no kidding, it was like the smell just punched me in the face. Like, it was awful. And, and so I walk in. Power's been out for a couple of days. Walk around, start looking to see if I can find what's going on. It turns out that when the power went out, all of the meat in their freezer thawed. And then all of the blood from the meat leaked out of the freezer, and it's in this pool right around the freezer on the floor, and it stank. Like, it was awful. And so this smell had just wafted all the way through the house. And now it was so bad that the smell was outside and, and you could just smell it everywhere you go. And, and so I called Stacy as soon as I could. She came over and, <laughs> and, and, and I went and got coffee and no, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. No, she came over and, and we cleaned it up together as quickly as we possibly could. We called our friends and, and just told them what they were coming back to, but we tried to clean it up as best we could. And and strangely enough, they never asked me to take care of anything of theirs ever again. I don't know what's up with that, but, but we failed massively in stewarding their house. We didn't take care of things very well at all. And, and what Paul is saying here in this section is that we are stewards of God's grace. We have been given God's grace to take care of it, so to speak, for a time within our lives. Now, just think for a second. Just, just pause here for a second and think about this. Have you ever looked at your life as the vessel through which you are to manage God's grace? Like if you stop and think about it long enough, our lives are drenched in God's grace. It's God's grace that woke you up this morning. It's God's grace that saved you at that one particular moment in your life. It's God's grace that helps you step away from temptation when sin is crouching at your door. It's God's grace that has gifted you to serve within the body of Christ and to build up the church. You look at your life and it's like grace, 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 grace. Just grace all over the place. And see, grace is not simply something that God gives us to save us or to bless us. It is that, praise the Lord, right? Like, like, we need that grace. But notice here, he gives us his grace so that we can tell other people about how gracious he is. 
He blesses us so that we can be a blessing to other people. Just like from the very beginning, God said that he would bless Abraham so Abraham could be a blessing to the nations. And so now Paul says here in verse 2, God's grace was given to me, notice what he says here, for you. God's grace was given to me for you. And the greatest act of blessing and grace to other people is to tell them that there is a God of grace who loves them so much and he has proved it by giving his only son to die on a cross for our sins so that we could know God's grace and blessing for all of eternity. So I wonder, have you looked at your life as the vessel through which you are to manage and steward the grace of God? Do you see your life as a stewardship of God's grace? If we're going to endure in our God-given mission, then, then we need to realize that we have a gift that is to be shared. We also need to realize this, number three, we need to realize that the gospel has to change us first. The gospel has to change us first. If we're going to keep going, if we're going to endure, if we're going to persevere, then we have to realize that the gospel has to change us first. Verse four, Paul says, when you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. What he's saying here is that God has made some things known in the Old Testament. He's made a lot of promises that a Savior would come, and now the Savior has come. The Savior has been revealed. All of the promises, all the prophecies, all the typologies, all the examples perfectly and totally fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And he's saying here that when you understand the extent of what has been done for you in the gospel, not just intellectually in your head, but when you understand deeply within your heart, when you have that kind of insight, then you can't help but want to tell other people about the change that God has brought about in your life. See, Christianity is not just some religion that you accept at one point in your life and then you go on like your life has never changed. That's completely missing the point. The power of the Spirit of God within us inevitably changes us. He's saying here that this mystery has so gripped me that not only has it changed me, but I want it now to change you too. Think of one of the stories I heard a while ago of one of the families in our church. Uh, long conversations with one of their kids about what it means to follow Jesus and, and just like back to back to back to back, a long string of deep, important conversations about following Christ. And then one day, finally, this little guy in their family trusts Christ for the forgiveness of his sins and the hope of eternal life. And amen. And, and it's like instantly, he's like, dad, I got to tell somebody. Like, I got I to gotta tell somebody. And dad's like, yeah, yeah, you're right, buddy. We got to tell somebody. Let's go. Let's go tell somebody. And he's like, no, 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 dad, dad. I got to tell somebody right now. And dad's like, dad's getting all fired up. And he's like, yeah, come on, let's go. We got a whole bunch of people that we can go tell right now about what God's done. And he's like, no, 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 dad, dad. I got to tell this person right now. And dad's like, okay, buddy, let's go. We're going to go tell that person right now about the work that God has done in your life. And that's amazing, isn't it? That's a sign of genuine conversion within our life, isn't it? That God has done this work so radically to take us from being dead in our sins to making us alive in Jesus Christ, giving us the gift of the Holy Spirit to live within us that we now have to go and tell other people about what God has done for us. It's one of the signs of genuine conversion. But then what do you tell them? Tell them what Christ has done. 
Verse 6 says this mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. That's a recap of the previous section at the end of chapter 2. We're no longer far away from God in our sin, but in Christ we have been brought near to God. We're members of this family regardless of our background. Verse 7, he says, Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given. Now let's just stop there for a second. This reminds me so much of uh, Paul's conversion. You remember that? Acts chapter 8, chapter 9. Acts chapter 8 kind of sets up the background, introduces us to who Paul is. His name was Saul at that time and what he was doing. Acts chapter 9 is his conversion, and and it's the working of God's power that he says here in verse 7. It's the working of God's power through his life. And and Paul at that time was living a life that uh, that was according to a totally different mission, which consisted entirely of persecuting the church and killing Christians. Until one day, on the road to Damascus, the Lord literally dropped him to his knees, saves him, and then tells him that he's going to spend the rest of his life proclaiming the gospel that literally just a few minutes before, he was trying to destroy. Now listen, there is only one thing that changes you so dramatically that takes you from killing the people of God to laying down your life for the mission of God, and that is the gospel of God. There's only one thing that's going to take you and me from being dead in our sins and making us alive in Jesus Christ, at one point not even looking for God, to another point at being completely changed by God. And the only thing that takes us from being dead to being alive is the gospel of God. So when this gospel changes us, notice we no longer remain slaves to this world. We become servants to this gospel. That's the word minister in verse 7. It doesn't mean that Paul just becomes a preacher and a pastor and he stands up in front of people and talks about the Bible. It, It does partly mean that, but it primarily means that he becomes a servant to the mission of the gospel. That's what that word minister means. He becomes a servant to the mission of the gospel, and that's the call for all of us as well. So let's pull back here for a second. Time for some application of this, okay? Just imagine, just imagine that uh, you walk into your workplace tomorrow. You uh, walk into your classroom tomorrow with fellow students, with fellow teachers, whatever. You walk in, and somebody comes up to you and says to you, hey, listen, I I hear that you're a Christian and and I hear that you love Jesus. Can you tell me about this gospel thing? And and that's one of those conversations, right, where where it's like the door's just swinging wide open and we get a chance to walk right in. Can you tell me about this gospel thing? Could you tell them? Could you take like two minutes, 90 seconds even, And say to somebody, just communicate to them the very basics of who God is and what Christ has done. Could you do that? Here's here's just a super simple presentation of the gospel that you can memorize, you can write it down, keep it in your pocket, take it with you wherever you go. This is the outline of the gospel that we teach our children here in Harvest Kids. It's what we teach our kids at home. And I share this with you right now, not to insult your intelligence, but to keep it as super simple as absolutely possible. Because for as profound as the gospel is, it is also very simple. 
And so I just want to share this with you. Here it is, five points. Somebody comes to you and says, can you explain to me this gospel thing? Well, let's start here. God rules. And God, God is holy, which means that there is no sin in God at all. And, and God made everything in all of creation, including you and me. And he made you and me in his image. And God is in charge of absolutely everything that there is because he created everything that there is. The problem, though, is that we sinned. And left to ourselves, the problem of every human heart is that we want to be God. And sin entered the world at the very beginning, and it wasn't just a problem for Adam and Eve, because what was a problem for Adam and Eve has now become a problem for you and me as well. We have sinned against this holy God who has no sin, and that sin separates us from him, and we should die because of our sin as a punishment. But the good news is that God provided God sent his only son, Jesus Christ, to save us from our sins and to rescue us from the punishment that we deserve. And Jesus is the only one who can do that for us, which helps us to see then that ultimately Jesus gives. Where we disobey God, Jesus perfectly obeyed God. He was perfectly righteous. And Jesus died on a cross in our place and for our sins to save us. And he rose again from the dead, victorious over sin and death, which leads every person in one way or another to this last point where we need to respond. And so I just want you to know that I care about you and where you spend eternity so much that I want to invite you right now to turn away from your sin. Turn away from yourself and trust in Christ alone for the forgiveness of your sins. And when you do, then go and tell other people about what God has done for you. 90 seconds. Could you tell other people about this grace that God has given to you so that they can know this grace too? This grace that God has given to you for them. See, if we're going to endure in our God-given mission, we need to realize that this gospel needs to change us first. This, what you see up here, this needs to change us so that we can share it with other people. And one of the ways that we know it's changed us is that we tell other people about it. Number four, if we're going to endure in our God-given mission, we need to realize that the gospel has no limits. The gospel has no limits and Paul says here that the gospel is boundless in at least three ways. Notice this, first of all, the gospel has no limits in how awesome it is. Look again at uh, the second part of verse 8. Paul says, To preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. The unsearchable riches of Christ. Like The New International Version calls it the boundless riches of Christ. The New American Standard Version calls it the unfathomable riches of Christ. New Living Translation calls it the endless treasures of Christ. It's the unsearchable riches of Jesus Christ. Like it's the same thing that Paul says in Romans 11.33. He says, Oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways like, listen, loved ones, we are never going to be able to get to the end of the awesomeness of God. And that right there is the only enduring motive for a mission-motivated life. That's pretty amazing. But then notice this. Second, the gospel has no limits in who it's for. Verse 9, he says, and to bring to light for everyone. For everyone. Like, just think about it like that. The gospel, he says here, is like this massive spotlight 
that shines the love of God for you and for me. Like, the gospel is this huge spotlight that shines into the darkness of our sin. It shines into the depths of our depravity and tells us how much God loves us. But notice this. It's not just for you and it's not just for me. Who's it for? It's for everyone. Every race, every people, every tribe, every tongue. The gospel is for every sin and the gospel is for every sinner. That's pretty amazing. But then notice this. Third, the gospel has no limits in who it's from. Again, verse 9, he says, The plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. Like we've said this before, but the gospel is not God's plan B. And it shouldn't be ours either. The gospel is not God's plan B. It's not like God looked down in the Garden of Eden one day and he saw Eve take a bite of the piece of fruit and thought to himself, huh, didn't see that coming. Like, that's not the way it goes. The gospel has never been God's plan B. The gospel has always and only been his plan A. And from before the foundation of the world, like Paul says back in chapter one, right? Before the foundation of the world, God chose us. He chose you to be holy and blameless before him. He adopted us. He predestined us. He's forgiven us. He's redeemed us. He has sealed us with the promised Holy Spirit. He's given us this inheritance that will never perish, spoil, or fade. God has done this for us. And that has been his plan from before the creation of the world. So listen, loved ones, that person that you've been praying for for so long, that person that that you keep praying for and it seems like their heart is harder now than it was when you started praying for them all that time ago, don't give up. Don't give up on them. Don't give up praying for them. Don't give up crying out to the Lord for their salvation. Happened to me just this week. Got a text from a friend who I haven't heard from in a very long time and used to be close friends when we were younger. He's walked really far away from the Lord. He texts me this week and and haven't heard from him in forever. And and it's like God just took that time to put that back on my radar and say, listen, you got to pray for him. Don't give up praying for these people. Listen, God can save anyone at any time in any way that he chooses. And the power of God that created all things has no problem revealing this mystery to even the hardest of hearts. Notice this next. If we're going to endure in our God-given mission to proclaim Christ, the number five, we need to realize that the church is central to God's plan. The church is central to God's plan. Verse 10, Paul just carries on in, in this thought. He says, So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Remember Joseph in the Old Testament? Had this uh, really groovy looking coat. Remember him? And and what made his coat stand out was that it had so many different colors. And and that's, uh, that's what the word manifold means. It means many colors, many varieties. The the wisdom of God shows itself in a variety of different ways. And, And I mean, we look around and we see the manifold wisdom of God everywhere, right? We see it in creation. We see it in in the sun, in the moon, in the stars, in the seasons, in the galaxies, in the ecosystem, in DNA. I mean, we look around and, and we are just surrounded at every step by the beautiful wisdom of God. But but here he says that now. The wisdom of God is being made known through the church. It's the manifold wisdom of God that brings about incarnation, crucifixion, resurrection, ascension, 
our conversion precisely at the times when those things happened. It's the multifaceted wisdom of God that somehow brings Jews and Gentiles together into one family. And Paul says here that all of that is playing out for all of the heavenly beings to see right now. Like, let's just pause here for a second and just try and wrap your head around that. Right now, angels and demons alike are watching to see what God is doing across his church right now. The Bible says in 1 Peter 1, verse 12, Peter writes, The things that have now been announced to you through those who preached the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. So here's the question. Why are angels paying such close attention to what's happening across God's church right now? Because as they see the church taking the gospel to the ends of the earth and people of all backgrounds coming to Christ and into this family, they glorify God all the more for his amazing wisdom. Just think about some of the things that we've learned through the course of this series in Ephesians so far. To think that our justification and our sanctification and our glorification and the reality that all of that is available to anyone who will trust in Christ. Like there are some angels right now whose brains are exploding I don't know if angels have brains, but, but if they do. But listen, fallen angels are watching as well. And why, why are fallen angels paying such close attention to what's going on across God's church right now? Part of the reason is to strategize about how to frustrate the plans of God, which they can never fully do anyway. But in seeing the manifold wisdom of God unfold within the church, the demons also then realize that Satan ultimately has no wisdom in himself. Why? Because they know that the manifold wisdom of God is being made known through the church and at the end of the day, Jesus Christ is building his church and not even the gates of hell itself can stop it. In fact, so great is God's wisdom that he says in verses 11 and 12 that everyone who trusts in Christ by faith has access to this God, has access to the wisdom of God. doesn't matter if you're Jew or Gentile. doesn't matter what your nationality or your background is. Together, we have unfettered access to God, to the wisdom of God for our lives, and all of the heavenly beings marvel at this. So think for a minute about what this means. It means at least two things for us right now. First, it means that the ways of the world are dumb. Like they're just flat out dumb, right? Like think about it. What's the opposite of wisdom? Dumdum, right? <laughs> you got wisdom on one hand, you got dumdum on the other hand, right? The ways of the world are dumb. All of these things that the devil puts in front of us to try to get us to believe, tries to convince us with, like more money, more power, more sex, more greed, more likes on social media, that all of those things are gonna give you the joy and the satisfaction and the hope that you desire within your life. No, 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 it won't. None of those things will give you the joy and the satisfaction and the desires of your heart because only Jesus Christ can give those things to you. 
There's no wisdom in the ways of the world. Which means then, second, that the wisdom for life, the wisdom for working out our salvation, is in the church. It's in the community of believers filled with the Holy Spirit. You need wisdom for the hard things that you're going through? God put that wisdom in the church. You need wisdom for the big decisions of your life? God put his wisdom for that in the church. It grieves my heart as a pastor to see so many people who go through some of the most difficult, some of the most important, some of the most significant circumstances of their lives, and and instead of, in those moments, pressing into the church, they pull away from the church. And sometimes pull away without even giving someone else in the family a voice in the conversation. And, and I understand we do that for a lot of different reasons. Sometimes it's shame, sometimes it's guilt, sometimes it's fear, but, but they pull away from the one place where God has put his wisdom for the things that they're going through. Listen, loved ones, that's not the time for us to walk away from the community. That's the time for us to lean into the family. Which means then that we need to be a family that's filled with love and grace and compassion and mercy, but a family where all of those things are built on truth. Because when it's built on truth, it's going to be true love. When it's built on truth, it's going to be true mercy. When it's built on truth, it's going to be true compassion and so on down the line. Which leads then to this one final realization that's so important for us to remember. If we're going to endure in our God-given mission, we need to realize that it will always be worth it. Verse 13, Paul says, So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. He says, I'm suffering. I'm going to keep suffering because I love you and I want you to better understand and embrace what God has made available for you through Christ. Just as we close this morning, I'd like to challenge us toward two things. Will you take a, a pen and a piece of paper and just write down the names of one or two people in your life? Maybe, maybe you've got a long list of people in your life that are not saved. And, and here's the first part of the challenge. Would, would you just write down their names and pray again afresh? Maybe just commit again right now today to, to keep praying for those people. And, and I think the chances are pretty good that the people that you just thought of are probably people that you're praying for already. Maybe you've been praying for them for a long time. You want them to know God. But here's the second part of the challenge. Pray that God would use you to tell them again, or maybe even to tell them for the very first time, that it is possible for them to know God. And to pray specifically that that when it starts to get hard, and, and you start to take some heat because you're telling them things that they may not like to hear, to pray that God will help you not to lose heart, but to persevere. Would you pray that? Would you pray that God would specifically use you to share the gospel with those people and to pray that God will fill us with such a deep conviction in our hearts that Jesus is really and truly and only what people need? Will you do that? Two things. Pray for those people in your life by name and pray that God uses you and strengthens you to not lose heart because in the end, if we are going to endure in our God-given mission, we need to realize that it will always 
be worth it.